0: First Peter 3, 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, the wives that he's been previously discussing. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered." Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd open up your words to our hearts today. May we, no matter what our position in this life might be, strive to better serve the Lord. That we might, through our witness and our lives, lead others to the Savior. This we pray in the Savior's name. Amen. You may be seated. So if we've seen in the last couple of messages, at the first paragraph of this chapter, Peter was writing to Christian women who apparently were married to unsaved husbands. Verse number one. Ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, That if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation, by the lives of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. When Christians live like Christ, whether they are servants or wives or children or governors or uh, pediatricians, They can influence those who have not yet been obedient to the gospel. They can influence these people in putting their faith in the Lord. So we've looked at the first six verses. We go to verse number seven when Peter turns his attention to husbands. Are these the same husbands about whom he was speaking earlier in verse number one? No, they are not. Those were lost men. They were not obedient to the word. They were not interested in the word of God. Just as the earlier exhortations were directed toward Christian wives, verse number seven is directed toward Christian husbands. I know that it's a foolish question, but why? What's the point? What is the purpose of this verse? There's never been, here's the purpose, there's never been a perfect bridegroom. No matter what the bride might have said on the day of her wedding, there is no such thing as a perfect husband. She quickly learns that even Christian husbands can be selfish, proud, they can be opinionated, They are, by nature, exasperating sinners, every single husband. For the next 50 years, she may try to do her best to teach her spouse what she expects of him, but there will never be very much progress until the Lord is actually involved in the process. In order for there to be substantial improvement in the character of anyone, it has to be by the Lord. So we looked at Isaiah this morning. We saw that he was a reasonably good prophet of God, preaching repentance to Israel, pointing to the Messiah. But even he had to admit imperfections when he stood before the Lord himself, Recognizing the holiness of God, he looked within and said, I am a wretched person. How can I be of service to the Lord? Then said Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto him, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And at that point, there was a change in Isaiah's life. I'm not saying that he was saved at that point. That's not it at all. But he, there was a marked improvement. And his ministry changed somewhat. Probably his, his whole life changed. My point is this. The best preacher, the best prophet, the best husband falls far from perfection. Nowhere near the mark of perfection. There's always sin to be eradicated. There's always room for improvement. There's always need for biblical instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. I am reasonably sure that if Peter had the opportunity, he might say, Christian husbands... Here are a few things that you need to consider. Every family and every family man has his own particular and peculiar faults, shall we say. Things that uh, he needs to deal with. And perhaps the preacher might come to him and say, you need to deal with these things. But Peter gives to us five general things which we might apply to all husbands, And beyond that, we can apply it to others as well. The things which he brings to our attention are knowledge, honor, support, companionship, and prayer. Let's begin with knowledge. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. Should we assume that in some cases the husband was saved... While the wife was not saved, Peter may not have been thinking specifically of this sort of case, but I don't know, and there was certainly that possibility. There were likely husbands and wives like Aquila and Priscilla, who were both children of God, but then there were these wives who were married to unsaved husbands, and there could very well be, probably were, husbands that were married to unsaved wives, In that society, toward which America is rapidly falling, husbands were putting away their wives for the most incidental things. Poor cooking, (coughs) poor housekeeping, bickering, uh, barrenness. The Lord, however, wants Christian men, Christian men, to live differently than the rest of society. These are not reasons to seek a divorce from someone. Even if that wife currently hates your savior, dwell with her in love and understanding, praying for her conversion. Don't cast her aside simply because you are going to heaven and she is not. Dwell with them. When Peter says, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, is that the sort of thing he was referring to? What I just said. I really don't know. I'm not sure what sort of knowledge Peter is referring to here. He uses the common word for knowledge, gnosis, genosis. So that doesn't give us any clues to what he was trying to say. So in my ignorance, I turned to the first commentaries that I usually turn to there in my computer, so they're very easy for me to check. So I looked at several. A.T. Robertson quotes M.R. Vincent and says that husbands should live with an intelligent recognition of the nature of the marriage relation, whatever that means. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown are slightly more clear, just slightly clearer. Christian knowledge, appreciating the due relation of the sexes in the design of God and acting with tenderness and forbearance accordingly, wisely, with wise consideration. Okay. And then John Gill says, The knowledge refers to the knowledge of themselves and their wives, and the duties belonging to the conjugal state, and the laws of God and man respecting marriage, according to their knowledge of the gospel and the Christian dispensation. My head began to spin just a little bit. After that, Gill says some things which have no support at all within the scripture and which most men would not say out loud today because they fear the murder that their wives might lay upon them. Could it be that Peter was pointing simply to a common problem within all marriages? I refer, I, I refer to a lack of recognition. Dwell with them in knowledge, a lack of awareness, a lack of practical knowledge. Wake up, husband. Your wife has needs beyond more grocery money and a day off from the kids every now and then. As confusing as the words of those commentaries seem to be, they're right, right? A Christian marriage is not all about the husband's rights and privileges. Husbands, Peter might say, take a look at the marriage of Abraham and Sarah. Take a look at David and his wives. Learn the lessons that are there, both the good ones and the bad ones. Study the marriage of Joseph and Mary. Boaz and Ruth. Aquila and Priscilla, that piece of paper that you got on the day that you were married is not the sum and substance of all you need to know about how to have a successful marriage. Learn, no, understand the lessons which the scriptures teach, and then take them and look at them in their practical application. Come on, smarten up. Extend those lessons into practical day-to-day duties of living with another human being. Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. The first specific, which Peter mentions, is honor. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife. How much do you know about that word? What is it to give honor? The book of Romans uses that word in some verses, which we quickly recognize. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. It's the same Greek word. 2 Timothy 2.21 is another familiar verse. If a man therefore purge himself from these outward sins, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Of course, the Lord Jesus should be given the honor due unto his name, as should the Father. Now, unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God alone hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, unto whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. We can understand these. Pretty simple. But let me take you to something that I just learned and found to be quite fascinating. Seven of the first eight times this Greek word honor, the Greek word which is translated honor, seven out of the first eight times the Greek word honor is, is used in the Word of God, it is translated price, not honor, or sum. Not honor. It appears to be talking about money. That's the word which is used in 1 Corinthians 6.20. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The word price is the word honor here in our scripture. Have you ever heard of an Honorarium. We know what that is. An honorarium is a payment given for professional services, which are quite often uh, given for nothing. But we're going to honor this one who has uh, presented this lesson by giving him an honorarium, which is usually money. Is 1 Timothy 5.17 speaking about an honorarium? Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. When Peter tells a husband to honor his wife, he is saying, recognize her value. Respect her value. Treat her according to her value. There are few foolish and ignorant people who try to say that the women of the Bible were secondary citizens, that only the men were important. They say that Christian women were mistreated and put down. That is simply not the case. People who are saying that don't understand the word of God. Perhaps the heathen societies in that day, perhaps where they're getting their information from them, Even among the Jews, wives were not always well-treated. But that is not a Christian doctrine. That is not Christian behavior. Husband, do you really want your marriage to work? Then work at it. Honor your wife as someone special. And, of course, that means give her all the love she deserves. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. Peter's second point was, give her all the support you can. Likewise, your husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Notice the word vessel. It's speaking of a container of some sort. Ships are sometimes called vessels. Before anyone jumps to conclusions, it needs to be pointed out that 1 Thessalonians 4 says that men are vessels, just as women are. And in fact, I've already quoted Second 2 Timothy 2.21, which speaks about everybody as a vessel of sorts. But generally speaking, wives are weaker vessels than husbands. That's what the Bible says. And the first thing that comes to my mind by way of an illustration is that nearly indestructible coffee cup that I use versus the dainty teacups that are behind glass in my wife's China cabinet. We have one or two vessels, coffee cups, which Judy does not like to use because they are so big, they are so thick, they are so hefty, when they're full of tea or coffee, she gets worn out just lifting the thing to her mouth. She's I don't need these. On the other hand, I fear to use some of her china cups. I'm afraid that I will chip the edge on a tooth, or maybe even on my lower lip. They are such fragile-looking creatures. Can I put it that way? The one vessel is much weaker than the other, but they're both perfectly fine for what they are asked to do. And the truth is, either one could carry tea or coffee. We all recognize that there are great differences between people. There are people whose minds are extremely sharp, and there are others, not so much. Sadly, there are people whose faith is not as strong as other people's faith. And these things are true no matter what gender we're talking about. There are men who are extremely strong and healthy, and there are other men who are feeble and frail. There are women at the gym that I uh, visit who I hope will never try to mug me in a dark alley somewhere because I'm pretty sure they could take me. They appear to be much stronger than I am. Peter's reference to weakness isn't talking about intellect. It isn't talking about strength of knowledge or even of faith. He's speaking in a general way about the average physical ability of the two genders. Again, there are huge differences between individuals. So this is a generalization. But as a general rule, the husband can open that new jar of pickles when the wife can't. Or at least she leads him to believe that's the case. And like it or not, quite often the man is emotionally stronger than his wife. Again, that's not to say that one spouse is better or more important than the other, despite whatever differences there are. What this is saying is that together they complement each other. They complement each other. When one is down, the other needs to be there to help him get up. Solomon rightly said, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he shall not he hath not another to help him up. If you'll bear with me, Peter's next point speaks about walking hand in hand. Likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. You may know that Mormons have some strange ideas about marriage over there on the other side of death. They talk about future multiple wives, physical intimacy, and populating worlds with the children that shall be born on the other side of death. Of course, the Bible says nothing about such things. But sadly, I have known good Christian people who had some strange ideas about marriage uh, on the other side as well. And I'm not smart enough to comment on some of that stuff because I just don't have a lot of biblical information. And apparently some of those people do. But this I know. When a man has been made a child of God, that position comes with the Lord's inheritance. And even though his wife has never preached a sermon in her life other than the one she preaches at him, if she's a child of God, she too will have an inheritance with the Lord. I'm convinced they both will have one of those mansions of which the Savior speaks in John 14. Some people believe they will share the same mansion. I'm not smart enough to know one way or the other. But if your thoughts, whatever they are on that matter, uh, give you comfort, then I'm not going to take your opinion away from you. All I know for sure is that both the Christian husband and the Christian wife are heirs together of the grace of life. Bible tells me so. Will they share an equal portion of some family inheritance? I don't think so, but I don't know for sure. Was Paul thinking only of men in that great chapter 8 of Romans when he said, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Was that male or female, or does it matter? Two verses earlier, he spoke of the sons of God. But this verse uses a gender-neutral word. You are children of God. And if children, same word, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified (laughs) together. This morning, I had every intention of having Brother Bulls read Titus 3 for us, but uh, I became overwhelmed with other things, and I forgot to invite him forward. So I'll just read it right now. This is from Titus chapter 3. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Every child of God is an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. So we should all peaceably get along, no matter who or where we attend church. But when a husband and wife are both saved, They may have 50 years of walking together toward that day when the inheritance is fulfilled. That's slightly different than the relationship that uh, uh, I have with you and that we have between families. That husband and that wife should walk together, serving the Lord hand in hand. Supporting, encouraging, and strengthening one another. Peter's last point is that the husband needs to be a man of prayer. Likewise, ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Should husbands and wives pray together? Certainly they should. They should do it far more often than they do. But this is not talking about the wife's prayer, nor is it talking about the mutual prayer that they place before the Lord. That your prayers be not hindered, husband. When that man is not behaving in the way that a Christian should... He is not only breaking the bond of fellowship between himself and his wife, but he's also breaking the fellowship that he needs with the Lord. God has placed conjugal agreement so high that if there is a problem between the husband and the wife, the Lord is offended by it. Live properly, he says, that your prayers be not hindered why are your prayers being unanswered is it because of problems that you have created and not corrected with your wife are you unjustly angry with her is she justly angry with you fix it kiss and make up I think we can say that in this context can't we 1 Corinthians 7, three, Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. Paul uses that same Greek word in Ephesians 6, seven, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not as to men. And then he goes on saying, Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord." Husband, if you're not rendering due benevolence, goodwill toward your wife, you should understand that God may withhold His goodwill from you, and your prayers will fall flat on the ground in front of you. Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives, and be not bitter against them. Five verses later, Paul adds, knowing... That of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there's no respect of persons with the Lord. It's hard to live for Christ in a world that hates him so much. We all need the help that is afforded us. We need all the help. That we can get. For example, we need the fellowship and the instruction that we find in a Bible teaching and preaching church. We need the word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We need the strength that comes with uh, uh, other believers, Christian friends and brethren. But the greatest strength or source of Christian strength, at least in a human sort of way, within Relatively small context, is a godly spouse. That marriage is a gift from heaven. So, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Please stand.